Daily cases of COVID keep rising in South and Latin America. U.S. President Joe Biden is set to unveil his infrastructure plan. And do you miss theme parks? Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Monday, the 29th of March, and I'm Carlotta Rubello. I'm joined here in Studio One at Midori House in London by Monocle 24's head of radio, Tom Edwards, and by Monocle 24's culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome both back to the show. Tom, we don't usually have you on the show on a Monday evening. What a treat to have you in the studio. Uh, were you up to anything nice this weekend? Well, I like that I bookended my weekend with the late edition, my usual Friday evening spot. And here here I am on Monday. I thought we'd kick off the week together. Um, well, we'll maybe talk about this a little later. UK feels a little bit different. Definite spring has sprung. Um, it was pretty sunny and nice on Saturday. Managed to be out and about a fair bit within the guidelines, which we'll Always, talk about. Always, of course. Um, but yeah, it's it's sunny. And it's, it was a lovely sunny afternoon today as well. So we, I don't know. It feels like there's some uh, some breaks in the clouds just here and there. It really makes a difference when the sun is out. I was mentioning to Fernando earlier how surprised I was that he's not wearing shorts because Fernando usually kicks off the spring for us here in the office. What What's the reason, Fer? Well, I told you it's a very weird reason because I was very much in a rush this morning. <laughs> and when I wear shorts, I do think about it because for me, they're very special. So I just had to put a pair of jeans, you know. So I'm really, really sorry about that. I think this is the first time in all the years I've known you that <laughs> spring has arrived before your shorts. <laughs> exactly. It's been a busy morning. I have to say so many things happening everywhere but I agree with you guys about the spring and even I noticed I have like a, my bird feeders the magpies are slowly returning because they disappeared during winter it was quite sad well Fernando it wouldn't be a Monday evening if I didn't ask you what you've been up to this weekend in terms of viewing habits you always have some treats that you've been watching uh, what was on our, your list well there was a good treat uh, I saw last night uh, you know Tina the documentary about Tina Turner uh, so of course if, if you guys are interested Interested, uh, do tune in to the Monocone Culture show as well, premiering this evening with the directors of the film. It's fascinating and she's so guarded. She's been quite private in recent years. So, you know, if you want a chance to see how is she doing now, all I can say, you know, she's in love. She had a very traumatic early career, you know, all sorts of problems. But, you know, she kind of came back in the 80s with number ones all over the world. And she was already uh, like around 40 at the time. Very unusual. Great documentary as well. Well, Tom and Fernando, great having you here on the Light Edition with us. Now, let's begin with a look at coronavirus. Portions of the world are tentatively looking forward to gradually escaping the grip of COVID-19. Brazil could not be said to be among them. In Brazil, indeed, matters are getting rapidly worse rather than better. Confirmed daily cases are now clearing six figures. Daily deaths heading towards 4,000. Matters are not now as they have not been previously helped by the fact that Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, remains disinclined to take the virus entirely seriously. But it seems that it's not only Brazil that is being badly affected, as we heard earlier from Monaco's Latin America affairs editor, Lucinda Elliott. Regionally, this new, highly contagious P1 variant is clearly the issue and is responsible now for the majority of new infections that we're seeing from Mexico down. And with doctors also registering much younger and otherwise healthy patients falling ill, which is obviously building this idea of, well, how are we going to manage Brazil? Are we going to try and possibly distribute more vaccines to Brazil, vaccines that are left over? It's a very tricky situation. 
Fernando, Lucinda paints there quite a stark picture about what's happening in Brazil. Just how bad are things getting at the moment? And it's interesting what Lucinda said. You know, I spoke, I think, me and, me and Tom last week about how bad the situation is in Brazil. But it seems that it's kind of that variant is spreading across the continent. And there's some interesting stats, Carlotta, that even in Chile, which is doing amazingly well when it comes to vaccinations, but apparently they, they are relaxing at the same time lockdowns too fast. So at the same time that they are vaccinating a lot of people, they're one of the top countries, uh, the number of cases are rising. In Lucinda, she's in Uruguay at the moment, which so far they have managed to keep COVID under control. But now there's a little bit of a struggle and they have to take care of the border uh, with Brazil as well. And and the numbers, they are not coming down. It's It's been a really difficult situation. There's not a federal approach uh, to COVID, which makes things very confusing. So I'm from Sao Paulo. My family is under certain limitations. But if you live in Rio, it's a different case. If you live in the Northeast, it's a different case. And, you know, we don't have an epicenter. It's kind of, it's quite widespread. I mean, I wouldn't say, oh, if you're in that part of Brazil, you're fine with COVID. So it, it is very confusing, but but it will be damaged uh, politically uh, to Bolsonaro's career in a way, even though he does remain with some sort of support. So people, despite his mishandling of uh, the entire pandemic, are still supporting, you know, his approach, I guess his denial of the severity of the virus. Yeah, I mean, you see crazy things like, for example, there's been a group of protesters, anti-lockdown protesters. Mm. They were in front of a hospital doing this protest and then there was kind of oxygen being delivered to the hospital and it did arrive late. So, you know what I mean? It's reaching quite weird and kind of manic, like happenings all over Brazil as well. So that's quite a, a difficult situation. Well, Tom, do you think this is a scenario that's just particular to this region? I mean, here in Europe, the prospect of a third lockdown is very much a reality at the moment, uh, with the likes of France and Germany and other countries already seeing a significant increase in numbers. Um, Is it safe to say that, you know, this is not specific just to South and Latin America? Well, no, I think the, the problem of a lack of a federated response, as Fernando describes it, we see everywhere, whether that is internally within a market like Germany, or certainly if we look at the EU bloc more more widely, and the stats speak for themselves. You know, in across the bloc, I think at the moment, it's still fewer than, I think it's under 13% vaccines per, per, per 100. Uh, and here in the UK, we're up uh, close or just over 50%, depending on how you look at it, whether it's actual doses per 100 or per 100 people. So, you know, the EU bloc has been left behind and we've seen not the threat of lockdowns, but the reality of them in Ile-de-France, in parts of Italy. Um, And again, it is the inability to get to grips with powerful uh, variants that seem to be doing the most damage. Understandably, you know, we saw and we know now from uh, the the genome analytics and all the rest of it that almost the entirety of UK cases by the end of 2020, and certainly the early weeks of 21, were this Kentish strain, which is much more infectious. And so it seems reasonable and probable uh, that those new, more potent variants will sweep other countries in where you have a laggardly approach to vaccine acquisition, rollout, and vaccine scepticism. And it's not helped by the likes of Bolsonaro, though I know he's changed tack on vaccines specifically. But in a country like France, it has this very ingrained, almost cultural resistance to to vaccines um it looks like there's a very very long way to go first and obviously that dynamic couldn't be any more different we started the show by talking about you know the the, the sun coming out here in the uk we've got an easing that's happened today there's some incredible stats we've had no covid deaths in in london only the second day this year scotland i think they're now three days running wherever you look in the uk you're seeing real 
progress, but we look to be an outlier. And if I may add one thing, I mean, people, you know, we should remain optimistic because even in Brazil, one city in the countryside of the state of São Paulo, Araraquara, you know, they, they, they had a very bad situation earlier this year. It's a very difficult uh, name of, for a city. Uh, but then, you know, the mayor was quite efficient. There was a lot of measures anti-COVID and suddenly there were no deaths in that city, you know. So I know it was a very particular approach for a small town, but, you know, there is hope. You know, you, it's not, you know, you say, oh, Brazil, there's no solution. It's such a big country. It's difficult to... You no, there are. You, you just need kind of efficient uh, people in power to help with that as well. Well, let's move on to the United States now, where President Joe Biden is unveiling this week his multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan. The Build Back Better proposal focuses on rebuilding roads, bridges and, of course, clean energy. Uh, Tom, the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, said that, and I quote, roads, railways, rebuilding them, this is not a partisan issue. Now, do you realistically think that Biden will be able to get Democrats and Republicans to come together on this issue? Well, funnily enough, infrastructure is pretty non-partisan. I mean, you looked completely baffled at the idea. <laughs> you're, you're, I don't know if listeners could hear that in your voice, but th there is an, a broad enthusiasm, even amongst some pretty rabid right-wing Republicans, uh, to go along with this because it's good politics um, to spend money on this kind of project. It's about capital investment. It drives employment. It gets the US moving and spending. And that's good politics, whatever your stripes. What I think is interesting is Biden has managed to um, ride a little bit the wave of his coronation um, and, and drive through some of these uh, big uh, stimulus packages and other spending. I think it's more interesting to look a month or so hence. He's going to have to do the same trick, but not with roads and rail, which are pretty bipartisan. Um, but he's going to have to do the same with things that the Democrats have been pushing, like childcare and family uh, credits, healthcare uh, measures as well. And those we know are rabidly political. In point of fact, there's even some sort of Democrat moderates who are a bit uneasy about mm. uh, pushing those things through, uh, certainly without Republican support. So I imagine that this will make enough sense to enough people uh, to keep his sort of broad church, this strange and improbable coalition ticking along. I think the real hurdles ahead of Biden are not too far away, but next month when he has to get these other initiatives uh, through. And I think it will be a very different story, actually, then. Uh, Fernando, one of the things I, uh, I'm excited about in this package is, uh, I don't think it's a secret that I do love, Amtrak Joe and his <laughs> love for rail. Uh, so I think I wanted to ask you, you know, if you could choose where this money would go to, what would be your priority? Are you on board of the train like I am? Do you want to see more buses? What do you think should be on, you know, the checklist uh, of infrastructure fixes in the United States? Listen, I am with you, Carlotta. I do like a good train. And, and, and the thing is, I, you know, I, I feel happy with this kind of, you know, package, especially for infrastructure, because the United States, I mean, they have serious problems when it comes to infrastructure. I mean, even some of their airports as well, they are not very nice. They're not up for standard for being for such for the biggest economy in the world, you know. So, uh, you know, I very I think it's very welcome. And, and it's interesting. I've read an article over the weekend saying that Joe Biden might end up being a game changing president. Nobody was expecting that. Everybody was saying that he was going to be kind of the president for a transition period. But, you know, with a very successful stimulus package with, you know, perhaps improving infrastructure, he might have a chance to change a lot of things in the United States. So I think it's very positive news. Well, we need to talk as well about 
about Pete Buttigieg, the US Secretary of Transport, who was one of the few Democrats during the primaries that was actually committed to rebuilding, I think it was 50% of all the roads in America. So a package like this can actually help achieve that goal because even the existing infrastructure in a lot of places is not up to standard. But let's move on to the final topic of today. I have a question for both of you. Do you remember this sound? Well, I'm not sure if that brings back good or bad memories, but theme parks can be a strong soft power tool for a nation or region. Just think about Disney or Universal Studios. Well, following a series of COVID-related delays, Super Nintendo World has finally opened in Osaka. Fernando, I have a sense you love a good theme park. Are these exciting news for you? I think it's super exciting. And of course, I'm not the biggest gamer in the world, but I love Nintendo and I love Mario. And, you know, I've been reading about you know, this opening in Osaka, but there's been so many delays. But then suddenly I was like, oh my God, it's really open. And I follow all the videos on the internet. I mean, I would love to be in Osaka right now, uh, trying out this. And I think it's a good opportunity for Nintendo uh, because I think they want to expand uh, Super Nintendo World. I think they're planning to open in LA, Orlando, Singapore. I mean, who wouldn't like to be on a Mario Kart, a real Mario Kart ride, right? I kind of like theme parks. Not many people know that about me, but I do, you know. It's, It's a bit silly but you know it's it's fun Tom, I'm not exactly sure where you stand on this one. I cannot really imagine you as a big fan of roller coasters. Why, Carlotta? I don't know. It's just you don't strike me as someone who would be enjoying... Uh, uh, the a, loss of control. Yeah, exactly. Well, funny, when, when that clip started at the top, just screaming and then sort of mad ratcheting noise, I just what, thought you'd put a bug inside my house. That's what it sounds like <laughs> every day. Um, no, look, I think what's interesting about it is this idea, and I, I think wherever people are st- sat in the world, there's this idea that we're just round the corner from this sort of rekindling of all of these amazing things where people can come together. There was amazing footage at the weekend of this gig in uh, Spain where they trialled this sort of uh, test and you, it, it just looked crazy to see a crowd thronging together. I wasn't quite sure about the music, but the point was it was people getting together. And I think theme parks, then they, they, they tap into something, you know, it is, it's a childlike delight, isn't it really, Fernando? And it's a shared experience. And I think that is what people are, are hungering for. So... Maybe you'll even drag me onto a roller coaster just to mark the reopening again. Who knows? And you can take a picture with Mario and Luigi. <laughs> Look at that. Fernando, I just have one final question for you. What was either your first theme park experience or your favourite? Well, I'll never forget when I was 14 at Disney in Orlando. For me, it was magical. I think it was my first trip abroad. And I remember those giant roasted turkey legs they had at snacks. <laughs> I mean, for me, that was extremely exotic. Is that and one of the rides? Or is that a... <laughs> no, that was, they, they were selling I mean, all over Disney. That, for some reason, I still remember to this day and I, I cannot wait actually to try it again mine, sometime were, soon. mine was Euro Disney in Paris I remember as a child running after Aladdin I, I think <laughs> I just maybe had watched that movie very recently but as I have a clear memory of running after Aladdin Tom do you have any uh, theme park memories? I, well I've been to a few of these I have actually <laughs> been to Euro, Euro Disney if I can shock you but my early experiences were obviously in the really subprime parochial British ones I won't name them to spare them the embarrassment <laughs> slash emails of complaint from listeners but there are some pretty modestly you know designed and configured ones in the UK countryside not too far from London and there do you know what I loved it 
But then it's only when you go to a proper good one that you realise you're really missing out. Do they have giant turkey legs? I don't <laughs> remember any turkey legs except on some of the patrons. <laughs> well, we will investigate. I promise we'll take an excursion, the three of us, as soon as it's possible, to your nearest theme park and we will report back. That's all we have time for today's late edition. A big thank you to Tom Edwards and Fernando Augusto Pacheco for joining me today. And of course, to our studio managers, Steph Chungo and Sam MP. I'm Carlotta Rubello here in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you.